Hey, I'm Lynn Rogala. And I'm Ali Diliberto, and we are coming to you from the ladies' room. So we can talk about removing stupid, frustrating, and toxic shit from the world in a way that's not prim enough for the dinner table. Okay, welcome back to the ladies' room. Here we are again. Yes, trying to switch up the way I say that. We've actually been in the ladies' room for like two hours, but now we're ready to let you listen. Yes. Well, that's the welcome, (laughs) right? So we're in here. And then once a week we say, hey, by the way, we've been hanging out in here for hours. (laughs) And now you are welcome in for this part of the conversation. Yes. And I am really excited because I've had this in the back of my head for a few weeks that I wanted to talk to you about this. And somehow we really haven't talked about this in our own time in the ladies room. So I'm interested to see how this is going to go. Yeah, because you're putting me on the spot. And when you do that, I often have to sing, let go and dance. (laughs) And sometimes, and you don't usually like our conversations when they're less processed. And usually by the time we let you in, it's pretty processed. Wait, you're talking to me? Yeah. Or the listeners? No, you personally, like you like to, by the time we usually talk about something, we've already talked about it a lot. You're talking about only on the ladies room though, because when we're actually talking, I'm totally oh, fine with the unprocessed conversation. No, I don't no, know what yes. you're talking about. <laughs> you're like, most of the time when you open your mouth, Allie, it's not processed. Right. No, no, I, I just meant like you? when we're recording. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I'm going to be friends with you. You're the worst. Don't I tell know. everybody that. <laughs> no. Well, because you're saying you like it better when we're, we're processed. I'm like, how would we ever talk if we only... You're like, well, I've been thinking about this for 10 hours and now I'd like to have five minutes of your time. I wrote a paper. Yeah, no, that wouldn't work at all. Okay. So, all right. We're going to talk we about jump woo? right in. Yeah. This right. is definitely a woo topic. So, the, of course, I wanted to talk to you about it. So, this is how it started that I was like, I need to talk to Lynn about this. I was how at a convention. Does my- penis candle channel the Saturn return <laughs> of the Mercury and retrograde and I'd in be my like sex life no hang up we have to restart the podcast because I have no idea what you're talking about okay go <laughs> go okay so I um was at convention and I was like at one of the like stores like looking through different things not a doTERRA store but um one of the books like I love decks of like cards so like you know sometimes I'll pull like a card that's like you need this oil right now and and a lot of times like it's perfect those are called oracle decks just so you know so that you can they're always called that yeah I I mean I assume you're not talking about uno cards and go fish Mm. I mean I have a deck of them that are not like for drawing a card but that are just like each oil and then like it's thing on the back and just where it's from, like that kind of thing. I don't know if, I mean, if they're just informative, but the way you're using it is an Oracle deck because you say, I like drawing decks of cards, but I mean, very specifically, you're not sitting there going ace of clubs. Yes. Um, okay. Just so you know, the card deck that I was referring to is called essential oil Oracle cards. <laughs> I know. So fine. <laughs> I will have to go with that. I mean, if you, right. you could try it with like an old maid set, but I don't know. <laughs> Just see what happens. Right. What, yeah. Okay. What are on 
I can't even picture an old maid card, but I'd like to know what that might actually look like. I was actually just thinking about that because I haven't played old maid since I was a little kid. Um, so for sure, one of them has the old maid on it. Right. And then I think the rest are mostly pictures because you play that when you're pretty little. So it's like pictures of animals, maybe fruits. I can't remember. Now I'll have to send you. I'll it might work you, like, perfectly. Like you draw the banana card and you're like, today is going to be bananas. I mean, I could draw the old lady card like a lot of days and it'd be perfect. Like, yep, that's exactly how I feel. Oh, it's funny. Lady. I was about to make a penis candle joke. And then you said, draw the banana card. And so I didn't even need to say anything. But let's not go down that right into 20 that. minute rabbit hole again. <laughs> so, all right. So you have okay. an Oracle deck of essential oil cards. Yes. Continue. So, but I mean, I just have like, I like stacks of cards. Like I have a, a stack of cards that are like each per, like the 34 strengths from Gallup Strength Finder, like different ways to use it, questions to ask to get into your strengths. So not only Oracle cards. Yeah, so, those are not oracle cards. Those are but I, like I don't know reference some kind cards of resource. Or, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean things that are kind of a resource because a lot of times when I'm working at my desk or doing some kind of coaching or whatever, and then I I just pull what I want right there. I like it more than a book a lot of times. So anyway, um, anything that involves less reading is usually my preference. So for real, I pick, I bought a deck of I bought a deck of cards. They're like on a little ring binder. And they are a companion to a book called Feelings Buried Alive, uh, Never Die. Never so Die, yeah. Which I, which I, like, I will say, you know, like, we already, I believe that, like, generally the body holds all the memory. Like, what do you like to say? The body keeps score. Yeah, it's that's so true. true. That's actually the title of another book. I'm not going to take that as my quote. The body keeps the score is another book. Yeah, and no, I mean, I really believe that. And also the biology of belief traces a lot of things. But there's a line where science kind of moves into what we know and has been demonstrated scientifically, maybe isn't, um, depending who you talk to, right? Depending on what different schools of thought. But I like to, I like it kind of makes sense to me and I dabble around it. But I was in, and then even right now with like what's happening with Peggy and her accident and, um, early childhood trauma and just like what she's experiencing. Like I know some of her process and what she's going through is, you know, like the body's kept score of all the things that have ever happened to her and the physical traumas intermingling with that. And it's much more complex than if it had happened to me, for example. So, um, right. and you haven't even watched who had at this had point and we only have another day left at this point, you haven't even watched all of the secondary talks on the doTERRA stage um, oh. where they talked a little bit about epigenetics where, um, and you and I have talked, I, I can't saw remember that one. if we, oh, did you? Okay. Well, there were multiples where they mentioned epigenetics. Oh. Um, you and I haven't even talked about, on, I don't know if we talked on the podcast about um, this, this, it's not even an idea. It's just something that I've been saying and thinking, which is that um, you spent time inside your maternal grandmother. Like we all did. Yeah. Right? As you know, your mom, that sounded born really with... creepy. And then I'm like, yes, right. No, I'm with you. No, <laughs> your mom's born with all her eggs. So half of your genetic material was in your maternal grandmother's body. It's true for everybody. And so the epigeneticists are kind of playing around with like whatever was happening to your grandma 
in her internal environment and her external environment got encoded. I think we have talked about this on the podcast, um, got, may have gotten encoded in your genes. Like the woman that I was listening to talked about, some of you were just born tired. She was talking about balancing hormones and stuff, but, um, so it's not even just that your body keeps the score. So it goes even deeper. Like your physical body definitely keeps the score, but your genetic encoding can also keep the score. And she was talking about, um, if you're like, if your grandparents lived through a war, and because she said, actually, the sperm is affected also. So say mm-hmm. your grandparents were in a very, um, like in a difficult war when your uh, when your mother was conceived, then that got encoded in your mom and got encoded in you. And I'm sure dads come into this as well. But like, as a very good thing that our bodies do, which is, hey, um, we have to be on high alert all the time. So we should really make sure that our offspring are on high alert. So now it's 60 years later, your grandparents are no longer in a war and you walk around all the time, jumping out of your skin at every little thing. Yeah. Um, that's real. Yeah. And, and I maybe think the genetic- thing that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, maybe science, maybe science hasn't totally hundred percent caught up with it. And I have some very like, as much as I am educated, so we'll call these medium educated opinions on how the scientific method applies to biology. Because when you're working with physics or chemistry or something, you can totally control all maybe, and and I'm sure I'm speaking of ignorance. I'm sure there's a chemist who would be like, that's not true. But for the most part, you can control the factors. But when you start bringing in people, the systems are too complicated. And there's actually, um, with my software background, who, who knew I was going to riff so much before you even finished what you're talking about. But, um, my <laughs> everyone who's ever listened to this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> um, where my software and math collides is a really interesting place where, um, now that we have software that takes human input that has user interfaces, because early software had really, I simple, don't know what that means. Can you, um, what that means? you don't know what a human in input is like a human is saying doing something let, let me I mean, break it down isn't doesn't isn't that how software mm-hmm. always works this person so, told the software to do something when when software first came out the interfaces were really simple here's a menu of four things you can ask me to do and you pick like i click number four yes. and then it has this deterministic sequence but now that um software is much more complicated when you think about the user interface of a mouse or um, mm-hmm. like all the ways that you would interact with even something like Quicken, like just, they just get, in, the, the amount of inputs gets infinite. There's actually mathematical proofs that once you have that kind of complex input system, you no longer can 100% test the software. Not just that it would be too hard to, or that it was, you know, a, a hundred things become 10 million things but literally you cannot possibly, like it's a non-deterministic system and you can no longer fully test it. Um, And it's so interesting because I feel like when you try to apply the scientific method to a biological being, even something as simple as a worm, this is why they do stuff on mice, right? They're pretty easy to control their environment. Like now I don't know that the scientific method can even a hundred percent be used on an individual and the gross we can, we can find out, you know, this thing works or whatever, but, we're such a complicated system and we've had so many inputs and like we're this non-deterministic ball of stuff that saying everything has to be proven the way we prove say physics is a bar that I think can't be reached. Like I think mathematically we could show that you can't reach that bar. Okay. I'll stop talking science stuff for a second. 
<laughs> no, I think that's a good, I mean, it's true and it's good. Um, I think it just, it just points to like why as consumers, we need to vote carefully with our dollars and what input we're taking in. And I mean, gosh, you and I just spent a half an hour talking about a supplement I tried for sleep, you know, like, <laughs> because we are really so complex. And um, I think we do as consumers, like you can't rely on, I mean, my God, a pharmaceutical company or the government to like spit out some information, but there's a lot more ancient wisdom that's captured in other areas that I think is starting to gain more respect as it should have. Right. And when I was saying inputs, I don't even mean just what you put in your body. <coughs> Excuse no, me. I sorry. I, you know, even just like you getting startled by a dog when you were a little kid, set off a cascade of hormones through your body. That's permanently part of you. Um, and so when people say, for example, like about oils, well, I won't believe this until it's been proven a hundred percent. I don't think you, even with drugs, even with pharmaceutical drugs, you can't get there because human biology is too varied. You can kind of get there, but you can't get yeah. there at the same level. You can't say like, this has to be proven scientifically because that bar is an unrealistic and maybe not appropriate bar for humans, because we also don't always look at humans as a system. Like you're right. not your liver, right? So if right. there's something I think to the treat your liver. Sa- that's what I was going to say. I think the best thing to be gained from that, because we are, we are certainly seeing science demonstrate oils and all kinds right. of other natural right. alternatives, massage and acupuncture and beyond mm-hmm. question, all kinds of alternative treatments. But that, what you just said is really at the heart of it is that as a consumer of anything or just an, a human being, like being able to start to grasp the complexity that exists in our body and not settling for just surface answers to complex solutions um, as a consumer has a lot of value, but seeing ourselves as integrated and approaching our care for ourselves and our families that way is really important and not always easy right. to do. It requires shifts in thinking and education and you know, even sometimes anecdotal stuff that hasn't been demonstrated scientifically yet or whatever. Yeah. And that's what I was kind of getting to is I was, it's so funny that you wanted to talk about this and I didn't even know because I was thinking (laughs) about that very specifically this week in the context of this woo conversation, because I love the scientific method. I love science. I love, you know, controlling variables and only letting one thing vary and all those things so that we can know but I think we threw everything else away and then we're left with just one blunt tool that doesn't do a super good job on a human being. Right. And we've built so many systems around that, um, you know, structures and systems and bureaucracy around it, especially in the U S but I think worldwide. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you were okay. Shopping for, I want to say one thing about genetics because, um, when I first learned about epigenetics, they were in like the being inside your grandmother. I mean, epi- this is not actually, I actually don't even know if this is epigenetics. You can tell me, but this is the most fascinating thing about generational um, connection to me and really how powerful. And I've read since like studies about um, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and like they, they can see even people who didn't know their grandparents are in Holocaust. There's all kinds of things they've been able to see scientifically. So there's a lot of really interesting things, but um, the thing that really persuaded me or really interested me was that when, if you're a, like I always grew up thinking like women should not smoke while they're pregnant because their children will have asthma. But what they've 
realize what they've learned is that a child who it's the grandchild who has way significantly higher incidence of asthma than just the just the child in utero and that I mean I won't quote those statistics but fascinating like I'm sure you can look them up they're pretty well known at this point but that stuff's really really interesting to me and gives you a lot to ponder as you think about you know all the different combinations that became us biologically and like the bible saying like negative things get visited for generations positive things get visited for generations like that sounds like some God being like an arbitrary curse and blesser, but I think he's just talking about the way we're designed to work. Um, yeah. I mean, there's more to it than that, but, and um, the most interesting epigenetics story. So epigenetics is the difference between genetics and epigenetics is epigenetics is which of your genes are turned on and how do they work together? Um, and because I thought getting... epigenetics had to do with like the part of genes that actually change. Um, it's like on and off. Okay. So they don't um, disappear. They're just active or not active. Yeah. Right. They're just on and off. They all have a little switch on them that you can turn on and off. And okay, now I have another question. When you look at, when they look at genes, can they see what's off and what's on? No, that's what I was just going to say. This is what's so interesting about epigenetics because the, the analogy that I've seen that I've heard described to describe it is it's like the difference between studying a skeleton and just studying a living person. So Mm. when you see like all the bones of a skeleton, um, you don't necessarily know how they would move in reality. I mean, it's not a straight, it's not a straight comparison. It's more like an analogy. Like when biology first started, they studied mostly corpses and all these other, and like bones and everything. And then right. what we find is like a human being, like a living, breathing human being with organs functioning and everything. You learn a lot more from that than you would from a corpse because they're basically not like a corpse is turned off. Like there's no power. Um, so like, just think about like dinosaurs, right? There's a huge debates about how dinosaurs walked and how dinosaurs this and whether they had feathers and all these other things, because all we right. have is the bones. And so we can infer some things from the bones, but not enough. So when we first discovered um, DNA and started really studying it and like sequencing the human genome, we were looking kind of at the equivalent of a dead person um, right. because it wasn't living in their environment. But now we're, we're realizing that this is, this is so much more complex. Like we, when we sequenced the human genome, we thought, okay, we've got it all figured out. Now we know exactly your genes are your destiny, <laughs> right. whatever, because it, it was an amazing, I mean, astonishing oh, yeah. accomplishment to sequence the human genome. Astonishing, like crazy, huge accomplishment. But it turned out it was like um, dead, basically not dead. You can look in a living cell, but it's basically dead. And so you can't see like how it interacts in the environment and even with itself based on what's on and off. And this also kind of gets into that thing I was saying about the complexity being untestable, that it's not even just this gene on and this one off, but what happens if they're both on? That's different mm-hmm. from one, right. like this one on is that's not even enough because it's this one on. And then is that one also on, or is that one off? And that's only what we know. I'm sure it's going to get way more complicated than we, but this is currently where we are with epigenetics. And what's the most fascinating story I've ever heard with epigenetics was um, with the mice. Have you heard the one of the mice where the moms were genetically identical? 
No, I don't. I don't know how they got them to be genetically identical. I don't know, but they had these mice, and they they had identical genetics. The mice are simple, I guess, and they they were female mice, and they fed them different diets, and they were both oh, yeah. pregnant. Or no, maybe it was the pups that had genetically identical. They might have like split an embryo or something. I don't know. Somehow they guaranteed that the pups, that's what it was, babies, had the same genetics. And they fed the moms different diets. And the mice were born different colors. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. So your genetics is just, it's, it's only part of the story. Right. Um, and I first started reading about epigenetics in, I'm trying to think, I remember where I was. So I'm trying to think what year it was based on where I was, 2002 or three, maybe. Okay. The first time I ever heard of epigenetics, I think was at a doTERRA convention or maybe, yeah, they did maybe miss something with holy yoga, but I mean, really they, they started to present on it, um, inside of what they were learning and it was fascinating. Yeah. Like you could, and you can suppress a gene expressing itself. You can prompt a gene to express itself. And we have a lot of control over all that. And I speculate, maybe we won't won't know even in my lifetime um, that we have way more control over way more of it than we have any grasp of right now. Oh, like be I transformed for sure. by the renewing yeah. of your mind is literally biologically true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, we already know that from all kinds of science and, but I think the degree to which we haven't even begun to touch and the way we educate and grow up and, you know, the soup we're in about the body is so segmented that we don't, I mean, we, I mean, what we're in our forties and thirties when we start to even unpack some of these ideas for most yeah. people or when there's a real health crisis or whatever. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I want to talk about, wait, woo. wait, go ahead. Before we start talking about woo, I just want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this is what an unprocessed conversation sounds between us, because it sounds it sounds rehearsed and coordinated, but I didn't know what you wanted to talk about. And you didn't know that just this week, I was thinking about the scientific method and biology and epigenetics just this week. Like that's kind that's of the true. soup we swim in. So it's so funny. Um, uh, I have one more story before you talk about Wu. I have one more story about um, environments on some right. scientific experience, if you want to hear this. So um, do you know about the marshmallow? This one isn't more, this one is less, this is less nature and more nurture. But um, do you know about that marshmallow experiment where um, with the kids, where, where the kids, right? Where, so for anyone willpower. who doesn't know, it's like the classic well, willpower. That's so, what's so sorry. interesting. It turns out that it's not, <laughs> it turns out that it's not, that's what they thought they were testing. So um, they give a kid, they offer a kid a marshmallow and they say, um, I can't even remember how the setup is. I don't know if they promise them to, or tell them don't eat it. I think they promise them if you don't eat it then I'll give you there are all kinds back. of variations of the study yeah. but it's like don't Let's do the basic marshmallow one. and they're just don't eat see. this and I'll be back and I'll give you two if you don't eat it I don't and even then, know if that's part of the original one but I don't think we'll it is part of the original out. but it, it is and so it's one of the ones that I know has been done and then the the uh, person leaves the room and then they observe the kids some eat it right away um some use distraction techniques like they might sing some of them right. touch How it some of them walk it. away from it right and they look said, at it. <laughs> la, la, la. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they said that um, this is like great. The greatest predictor of success in life is whether the child doesn't eat the marshmallow or whatever, because your ability to control your inner self, la, 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 la. That was what yeah, they said. Just of it. Yep. Right. So now someone has gone back to that data. And I don't know if they went back to the original data, if they repeated the experiment. I don't know. 
But what they found was actually the primary predictor of whether or not they eat the marshmallow is whether or not they've experienced any kind of childhood trauma or scarcity. Because if they don't trust that the person is going to come back and give them something, they'll eat it right away. And the primary reason they wouldn't trust that person is because they've had the, the experience of scarcity. And also, I think um, that consequences played in like how they were, but yes, the primary, but there were other, like, I don't know if the right word is, but like cofactors too. That were right. But that was not, that was not one of the original findings. No, it wasn't even what they looked at. They just went, okay, if you get, they didn't say like, well, why are, I mean, they did, I mean, that started an immediate play where everybody studied this and it's been repeated all over, you know, different places, but they started looking for like, well, how do you get that willpower? And they didn't look for like, or they, why like don't they have eight, it? And they didn't go like, oh, did some of these kids have major trauma? And that would be hard to identify in any group of yeah. children, really. Yeah. The so very, when somehow now, this, they is, this is a oh, recent, that like, the, no, this is a recent thing where they came out and said, oh, it turns out that this whole experiment is garbage um, for predicting self-control. And really what it is, is that kids who experience trauma and scarcity don't have what we call self-control. If they're presented with a resource, they're going to consume it because it might not be there later. And that is not bad. That is exactly what I would do and what you would do, right? Like, I mean, look at the toilet paper buying last year during COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that was highly correlated to that too. Like if you trust that there's abundance and you trust adults and you know, they're going to take care of you, you leave the marshmallow alone. It's as simple as that because they controlled for like socioeconomic factors, but they didn't control for the rest. So mm-hmm. what the, what the experiment really predict, what the experiment really showed, cause they did it longitudinally is that if you don't experience childhood trauma, you're likely to be more successful, which is kind of like, well, duh, <laughs> but then they didn't know that's what they were studying. So, okay. Sorry. Wait, now I want to say something wholly anecdotal, but when I very, like when I very first became like, um, uh, like a adopted stepmom and then a a foster parent, this like couple in their eighties were mentoring me. And I remember that they told me like many times, like the number one factor in a child's, um, success, according like to some, I can't even remember what they'd studied was how, was that they had a full pantry all the time. And that is like also probably really anecdotal. But when you think about it's it ties into the same idea. And I've always really yeah, like no. taken that to heart, like the amount of security that I mean when I especially when I was foster parenting, like I made sure kids saw food on the counters and yeah. around and like that they had free access to not like anything they could ever want. Um and I think that's interesting. And then I, one other story now that I said food on the counters, I had um, my first boyfriend, my first love, his parents like were like, you know, they had some kind of business where they like stocked candy machines or something. And they had shit. I'm sorry. Oh no. I almost said, sorry for saying shit. They had like shit tons of candy, like everywhere <laughs> all the time. They, like, they would have bowls of it on the counter, which, you know, like I wasn't allowed sugar when I was little. My first word was fruit loop, but I was always amazed. <laughs> like they're all super, you know, a healthy weight. None of them are under any like compulsion around candy. Um, and I just thought, Oh, it's not that was interesting. And it kind of, it's totally anecdotal, but it's the same kind of idea. Like 
what we create, like all these rules and stuff around and our impact of just what's always available impacts how we look at it. Yeah. I mean, when you restrict sugar, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like such a frog in my throat today. When you restrict sugar for all the best intentions, like we restrict sugar in my house, you create scarcity around it. Um, and then people want, you know, it just creates more urges and more compulsion. I'm not saying like pile sugar in front of your kids, but it's a real thing. Yeah. There are so many rabbit holes. Okay. Let's go back to all right. So were. this is what an unprocessed conversation sounds like because, <laughs> um, Good <stuff>. they, <laughs> because we're, we're now rewinding like in our, in our brains, I'm going to speak for you here. We know where we are out on the branch and now we're able to go all the way back and go, all right. So you were picking out the cards and doTERRA convention. <laughs> like I had the whole thing. Um, yes, totally. Um, all right. So you're okay. picking the cards. But actually, I'm super excited about all the stuff we just talked about because inside what I'm about to say, you couldn't have prepped it better. So it's kind of perfect. So well, I picked up the so fun about our unprocessed conversations is that like, I, I think it is fun that we're having an unprocessed one because it sounds like we talked beforehand <laughs> and coordinated. And this is literally what it's like when we talk on the phone because that's how amazing we are. That's true. But and also... <laughs> Like it, our unprocessed conversations are only maybe not awesome when there's like a lot of emotion in it. Then yeah. there's like something to distill. And this is more just curiosity. Right. Okay. Totally. So I want to preface saying I have not read that book. I have the only thing that I could even point to while I might even be interested in what this said is there's a, um, a leader in doTERRA who's one of their founders and her name is Laura Jacobs. And she is you know, like history owning wellness center, like just absolutely a brilliant mind, in my opinion, in the natural health world, love science, um, study and research. And she's extremely compelling when she talks. Um, and she, when doTERRA rolled its emotions and oils line, I don't know, four or five years ago, um, it was really a connection for me personally. And she talked about why they developed these oils and it, was really interesting for me to start to think about like a real biological connection. And she said, you know, historically, this, this was always true. If you were sick, like you did something, not like only your body was doing something like there was sin or darkness or whatever, like there. And that is, you know, obviously one isolated way of looking at it. But um, she said, we just have a reference guide. Whenever our kids are sick, like they look everything up, like what could be happening or whatever. And it was really interesting to me. Um, just that way of looking at like, maybe the medical Western medical world has something to say, and maybe, you know, just all, all these different resources, right? Like maybe there's other ways of looking at what might be going on in the body. So I picked up this deck of cards and then John had, so it, you just like, look it up and it's just like you just turn to a thing and you look in order and then there's like all kinds of different ailments or whatever so john had a backache and a, very specifically in like his lower back the next day and i was like oh i'm gonna look and see what that's connected to and it said um like oh, i should actually look instead of just telling you but it basically was like connection to money and um fear, like feeling unsupported, financially. unsupported. And I, yeah. And I was like, this is literally what's been happening in my poor husband's life all summer. It's like, we've been in 
you know, like crisis with Peggy and our finances have been really under strain and he's been working, you know, full-time, even though I'm typically the breadwinner. And so like all the financial problems that he doesn't like normally have the amount of support in kind of landed at his lap. And so I was like, well, isn't that interesting? And of course, yeah, I and used oils and all that stuff, but it was interesting. It, it, it's really interesting because birch is the oil of support. Um, and I can't think of many oils much better for low back pain. And birch and wintergreen are basically the same. Um, we just use wintergreen because it's easy to access and birch is fancy. But I'm remembering, this is so interesting. I'm remembering one time when I made a protocol for you. And I knew you needed birch and I knew you needed to feel supported. And I remember saying, I feel like you should put this on your low back, but I don't know why. So use it there. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, I think at some point when we start like teaching kids, like listen to your intuition about this instead of, you know, like, I mean, I think there that's just going to be an obvious because I think our inner intuition holds so much, especially if we train it. Yeah. And um, what's so interesting too, is we're calling this woo, but it's only woo in the West. Um, in the East, it's just part of medicine because they don't discard millennia of tradition just because they found something new. <laughs> like we were, um, what was I listening to this week? And they were talking about how Americans basically have no historical memory. They're like, oh, that was a hundred years ago. I was listening to a <laughs> podcast and they were talking about like what the Western context for things is like slavery was 150 years ago. Can't we just get over it? Whereas even in Europe and certainly in um, Eastern where there's like ancient cultures, they can't get away from history. Like there's a Roman wall on your way to Starbucks, right? So 150 years is nothing. That's like barely before Downton Abbey, right? You watch Downton Abbey and you're like, yeah. oh, this was a hundred years ago. But as Americans, we have like a hundred years ago might as well have been like some other reality of humanity. And that we've discovered, you know, sex and fun and money and all these problems also were invented by us, like, since, I don't know, 1960. Um, so we're calling it woo, but in the East, it's just part of medicine. And I sometimes look up the Chinese body clock, like when I can't sleep, I'll look up on the body clock, which body system is active right now, because I'm not sleeping from like 3am to 5am. Oh, it's my lungs. It's almost always when I'm awake, because I have also asthma. Um, and so I put on brief because I know my lungs need extra support and it's not, it's not necessarily the dysfunction that's waking me up. Like my body is functioning properly and it's dedicating a lot of energy to healing whatever's going on with my lungs between three and 5 AM. And it's like someone banging on a pot and it wakes me up because it's like a lot of energy being dedicated to it. So I use breathe to help assist. So it won't wake me up. Like go ahead and repair me in the night, but kind of keep it down like I know you need to repair this wall but I think you could be a little quiet use a rubber mallet instead of a hammer <laughs> so this wisdom it's not I want to say wisdom it sounds almost condescending right it's such a western centric view um it's it's just as scientifically supported through empirical study in the east as anything any pharmaceuticals we have here in the west we just threw it away a long time ago because I don't know why it wasn't fancy wasn't modern yeah, I think that's part of it, but <clears throat> I think that there's um, plenty of like things, depending on where you're talking about in the West, that still haven't been able to be demonstrated scientifically, and where you know they both need each other, right? Like we're killing off, you know, 
rhinos oh. and elephants <laughs> and all the stuff for stuff that's clearly not demonstrated oh right that's yeah yeah of... yeah so no, i think that's... they do need both right right but i'm i'm saying like it depends on your definition of scientifically demonstrated if chinese doctors have known that your gallbladder is connected with whatever emotion for thousands of years then it's super arrogant to say mm, that's not really scientifically proven like they've done as much empirical and maybe it wasn't as rigorous as far as like controlling variables and everything. But if you have anecdotal evidence across multiple human beings spanning thousands of years, I would call that scientifically validated. And no, I think it's I ar- think Western that... arrogant to say it's not. No, no. I think like, I mean, like, for example, like the meridians are scientifically validated, but how they work isn't even, we don't even, well, there's a lot of guesses, but we don't understand um, we, like we can see iodine, you know, that we can trace mm-hmm. it moving through the body on the meridians, but there's no other channel, but we don't, we don't know why, like we still don't understand that. So those things are like fascinating. So those are, I think it's a fair defense, what you said. Okay. Back right. to I mean, it's so John- like scientifically validated by who is really what I'm saying. So if China has studied, you know, like Chinese medicine is thousands of years old and those like the idea that your low back is associated with feeling unsupported. If they have empirical evidence for thousands of years, who are we to say it's not scientifically validated? It's just not validated by us. No, I kind of, I would love if like, there was like a scorecard. I mean, I feel like someday somebody will make like, you know, Western medicine supports unsupported in this way, like validate, like this is what's believed in Ayurvedic medicine. Like it would be really interesting to study the overlaps or for somebody else to do it. So I could have a deck of cards and then pull up stuff that (laughs) I could look at. Yeah. All right. So back to Um, John's back. Okay. So the thing with that, that's all. I mean, I used oils on his back and I used oils that had wintergreen and lots of stuff. And, you know, he felt, and also the other pieces I responded by also having a lot more conversations about money than I would have and like acknowledging and he it wasn't even something he's asking me for he's like I don't he like he was even he even would have said like I don't really feel unsupported I mean I'm doing my role right now but it left a lot on his plate and so whether the language was what he felt or not like I acknowledged a lot of the things and and um and it's gone again. So I think that's really, and I just liked the double approach, right? Like I got to address two things with one thing pointing to it. But the thing I haven't told you about is that I look like somehow, like when I just flipped the deck to give John an example, it said diabetes. And, um, and I found this is super, super convicting and I don't have diabetes, but I, would definitely say that like over the course of the last four months of chaos and how that I've made shifts in my life that if I don't unmake them, like I would be heading toward pre-diabetes for sure. Right. So, and probably I've, I've walked that line back and forth, you know, over the last, you know, 15 years for sure. But the little reference deck for diabetes says, judging self or others severely, disappointed in life, ongoing feelings of sorrow, emotional shock, joy of life is gone, feeling it quote shouldn't have been, 
and obsessed with wanting to control or ashamed of something you did in the past. Okay. So I don't have any shame or guilt. So that one doesn't apply to me, but yeah, you never there... did. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, <laughs> Brene should come over and study me. Um, right. obs- <laughs> no, you obsessed... wouldn't be an interesting subject. She's like, I've tried to detect shame in her and I can't find any, I can't, I might have to it. shame her on purpose. Like, I always tell people like, I'm the, I'm the, like, I'm in her original study group, like, because I, like, I really like the people, like, how come you aren't bothered by the stuff everybody else says? Um, so upset, but I really like something in my brain landed with like control. And I was like, Hmm, I, I totally can identify with like, I mean, compared to a lot of people, like I want to control things more than a lot, maybe the average human being, everybody likes control to some degree, but I was like, I wonder if I connected with moving away from diabetes in my life with acceptance and, and obesity and instead of about like it being controlling my diet, if I move, if I like had this connection in my mind that, um, that that might be part of the cake. And I've been thinking about it a lot as I've been like, okay, time to shift into healthier food choices. Like I've been literally thinking like when I want to like eat a bunch of crap, um, I'm thinking to myself, like, what is it I want to control right now? And like, do I want control more than I want to not ever be diabetic? And that question has been fascinating to me. And again, like, I have no idea how somebody determined one thing was the other, but, um, like, a lot of those things resonated with, I mean, for sure, right? Like emotional shock, like a lot of the pleasure of life in the middle of crisis, um, ongoing, just like wave after wave of sorrow. And the dramatic shifts in my life have always been connected to most of this being true at the time. And then I'm kind of able to like rein it back in. But I wondered Um, and I've certainly like most people who overeat have a connection, like there's a control, there's a connection to emotion there, but I never had a connection to control. And it was really, it's been really interesting for me to start to look and think like, Hmm, I wonder if, uh, you know, like being diabetic, like, or pre, like if the choices I make toward that direction are connected to control. And it's also interesting. God, thank God my dad would never listen to this podcast because I'm going to say this. My dad is the healthiest person you could. I mean, he's super, super healthy. He's 73. Like he rides his bike, like in the summers, like 50 miles a day, he calls them two a days. He's the most disciplined. I've always said like the most disciplined person you could ever find. And I've always wished I was more like him, but I started to, and he, and he has diabetes, which now he controls, but he's never been obese. He's never had any kind of weight problem. He's never always been super skinny either, but like, he's really like based on his weight and what usually we think of as like type two diabetes, like my dad isn't, has none of those factors. And so, um, when he developed diabetes, like it was really alarming, but I, when I started to wonder about the connection with control, I one, I mean, I could definitely see that nobody in the world is more controlled than my dad. And maybe there are some emotional biological connections and genetics on both sides for, of the family for different reasons that make this something for me to grapple with in a different way than I would have if I didn't have it as connected. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And it also makes me wonder about the cause and effect because you and I have been talking a lot about astrology too. And things like when I was First of all, you talk a lot about astrology and I listen. No, you talk about it too. Don't lie. I don't know if Um, that's true. Don't lie. Is that what you were just talking about? Oh, don't lie. But don't lie. Yeah. Um, Usually I'm like, I don't understand. What does that mean? Explain it again. Um, We were talking on one of the podcasts, joking about when I first went to yoga during what is what, what is the Saturn return? (laughs) And the Saturn return is like your late twenties and your mid fifties. And those are pretty major shifts for a lot of people. Like as you're late 20s turning 30 and then in in mid 50s as you start to approach in modern world midlife but in ancient world like end of life Mm. um like that's the traditional midlife crisis maybe a little past for some guys it's like 40 when they buy the douchebag car but um (laughs) it's really interesting cause and effect because is this something that's just part of the human experience and we noticed a correlation as a way to market or is there causality I don't even know I don't care like well, so, I do kind of care. It gets into the place where like I inter- I'm interacting with it. Like this is to- like, like I said, like I want to talk about this woo thing with you because I don't understand really how to wrap my mind around this or, you know, if I well, have how much credibility I give it, but I do think it's really fascinating. Well, and what I'm saying about in the causality is, so in your dad's case, I don't know, I'll put that as an outlier, but when you think about those emotions that you listed, like controlling and all those different things, those tend to be um, the kinds of things that people would like eat if they didn't process because it's something you can control. And I think about like the correlation um, between um, depression and alcoholism, especially in the U S like most of alcoholism and drug addiction is untreated mental illness. And I probably people don't agree with me on that, but there is a super high correlation between early childhood trauma and later drug addiction. And I know many people personally who have untreated depression and anxiety and they treat themselves with alcohol and drugs. So I would- Or marijuana. Or, well, that's a drug. Um, Well, I mean, but we look at it now. I mean, more and more I found, well, I mean, I live in this first, I at least live in the first state that legalized marijuana, but more and more I found that people are starting to dismiss that as a drug and just like part of what you do every day. Oh, well- I mean, alcohol is a drug too. I could just say drugs, but I distinguish alcohol because socially we do. But um, like that is, there's a high correlation between, so you could say like, like, oh, alcoholism, here's the, the emotional factors, anxiety, depression, because some of those things, and I'm not dismissing the woo of it. I'm thinking it's like, yes, it, both and, right? Yeah. Like there's probably some behavioral things. Like if you have these unresolved emotional issues, your behaviors tend toward this. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that's a part of it, which was, which would make sense. And, and I think that's also why, um, I mean, it's another variable on the conversation about oils and how they affect us emotionally and energetically because we've co-evolved with plants like walking in a forest is very calming and, and uh, those tree oils tend to be really calming and trees release for whatever reason, they release out those um, aromatic compounds that make us feel calm. And so when we use those aromatic compounds, we feel calm because walking in a forest is calming because we feel calm. Like it's like a circle, right? Where you're not, it's a chicken and the egg. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. And, you know, we, have we talked about the Itovi thing on here before? 
I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Okay. So there's like this little, so biometric feedback is used, you know, all over the place, um, especially in alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fitbit or, you know, you go and get a scan at the naturopath and they tell you, you know, these products are good for you, not good for you, et cetera. But um, they have one that's programmed specifically to tell you what oils that your body needs. And it's like a little crazy ninja, like almost always I'm like, holy cow, how did it know that I'm having menstrual cramps or that I have the worst headache ever or that somebody just broke their bones? Like there is for sure, like that's one of the things that I've used in my own life and my own home that's really helped me integrate that just something I can hold in my hand can really can send, can detect energy that can indicate answers and solutions and things beyond my own level of awareness. And that's helped me. I use, I mean, we use the, our iTobis all the time and yeah. Lynn's like the ninja iTobi reader, but, um, well, and it I, is really if interesting. You wanna, if you want to keep talking about woo, you just mentioned cramps and headache and broken bones, but that's not even how I use the iTobi. So no, cause I we certainly look at emotional impact. Yeah. I, Go ahead. And it, no, I, it's, uh, it's like a little insight into what's happening in a person. Um, like I did one for a stranger a couple of weeks ago. <coughs> Sorry. I have these coughs. <coughs> I told you, I'm going to look up it. cough and find that. <laughs> no, I'm just, it's just really, it's starting. It's we're getting out of monsoon season. No, we're getting out of monsoon season. And so it's just drier than I'm used to for a couple months. Um, but the Itobi just tells, I mean, I was scanned, we scanned somebody I'd never met before. And I asked her like, is this happening in your life? And she's like, yep, that's exactly what's happening. And then someone else that I actually know, we scanned her and I'm like, oh, this is what's happening too. And she's like, oh my gosh, you just totally nailed it. And it makes me look magic, but really the Itobi is doing the work. And then I just look at the oils and I am familiar enough with them emotionally like if you had scanned John with his backache, he might've scanned for birch or right. um, Cypress and all these things that have to do with like support and money and flow and stuff. Um, so that is super fun because, and, and I think it is, it's more of the body keeps the score, right? Because the emotional and like I was talking about my lungs earlier um, and your lungs are also your center of grief. Um, and that mm. makes total sense when you think about like, if you've ever had, either had or listened to someone who's going through profound grief, they talk about not being able to breathe. Like they feel like they're getting crushed. Right. Right. And that's not metaphorical. Like your lungs are really reacting to that grief. Like that's happening in your body for real. So yeah. it makes total sense. And, and I think, I think Eastern medicine has known this for millennia. And yeah. I mean, even our grandmas like, mm -hmm. living in the West knew a lot of this stuff. Right. Yeah, like the the generational wisdom that we've just thrown away, right. which we've or talked we've about a bunch of here. anecdotal or yeah, or, or so I think or not, not good anymore. Now that we have a new thing, we'll just replace it. Right, we have such a better, you know, TV dinners and white bread. We've got the world right. solved. <laughs> um, Gross. <laughs> do you remember those disgusting potatoes in those TV dinners? I can. Do you remember? Did you ever have the one that had like the pudding? Yuck. Oh yeah. 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 Put, putting it, not potatoes. I can't remember that, but putting, oh, the potatoes yeah. were disgusting, but like who With puts sprinkles, pudding in the, I liked that. This was back when TV dinners were made in the oven. They weren't even, oh. I don't know how convenient they were. Cause you, I guess you didn't have to do anything. You just had to wait. Now right. we they the might've been healthier. 
I don't think so. I'm remembering some of them and I think they were pretty grim, <laughs> but I remember this one and it had this chocolate stuff and they called it a pudding, but it must've been like British pudding, which just generically means dessert because it was baked in the oven. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't cake. It was I'm like, I can think about it. I can almost taste it in my mouth. You should see my face. I'm making like the most disgusted, like blah face right now. Because totally I can funny. remember it had like a crusty top on it. And then it was like a little gushy in the middle, but it wasn't the texture of cake. It wasn't the texture of pudding. I guess it was closest <laughs> to like a shitty soup. Like a melted brownie. No, not that sounds actually good, but like, <laughs> Like a shitty souffle, like a half collapsed, failed. Right. And, I can and that was that was supposed to be the treat. It's sitting next to this yucky piece of overdone turkey and then peas and carrots, which I loathe. And then the <laughs> yucky potatoes. Like this is not, I, I know I get to eat in front of the TV, but this is disgusting. So, I yeah. don't think I've ever had a TV dinner in my entire life that was cooked in the oven. My childhood might have moved into the microwave era just at the crux of that. Right. I mean, you're not that much younger than I am. Um, but my parents and... were definitely early adopters of the microwave. I remember my grandparents saying, like, you must stand eight feet back since your parents have chosen to own a microwave. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> um, yeah, we definitely, I'm, I'm thinking of the house where I had this dinner and it was a rented duplex. So for sure there was no microwave. I don't think there was even counter surface for a microwave um, and especially the early seventies and eighties microwaves, which were the size of a box top, like a set top TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It, they, you, you peeled, I think you covered them with foil. I can't remember now. Um, and there was a couple times where I babysat where the parents left me a TV dinner and I just had to put them in the oven and then give the kids the slop. I mean, a bologna sandwich is better than that mess. Yeah. Bologna. Oh, bologna. I was never a big bologna fan. I like salami better. Yeah. I have more memories of like playing with bologna than eating it. So that's probably <laughs> indicates your acceptance level. <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't really think my mom ever made me a bologna sandwich because my mom's Italian, so let's be real. She wasn't about to put that on a sandwich right. when you could have like salami and you know. Yeah, like we used to actual... grocery shop at the place where you could really get salami shaved properly to make my mom happy. That would be like how we would decide where we could get groceries. So I don't think I had too much bologna. Eric loves bologna. And you know what? If I will try to get him to tell you this story the next time we're together. It doesn't take much to prompt him to tell this story, and it's very sweet. Um when he was a kid, um, yeah, I mentioned on a previous podcast that his parents both came over from Poland. And so they were like in a pretty Polish community where he grew up. And he said when he was a kid on Saturdays, they always had to run tons of errands. His mom was like dropping him at tennis and his sister at dance and going to the deli and all these different things. And one of the places they went to was a very traditional old school deli where they would sell you bread by the pound, not just bread, not just meat by the pound, but bread by the pound. And so there were always these like pieces to make up the weight, like butt ends. <laughs> so his mom would always give him a butt end of bologna and a butt end of bread um, for a snack in the car because there wasn't time. Like, it was like, okay, I yeah. picked you up. We're going to go pick up your sister. Here's your snack. And to this day, that's one of his favorite things to eat in the world is like <laughs> a really nice, like a boar's head, you know, yep. bologna. And, and then, um, 
and then a piece of good it's, it can't be just wonder bread like if they weren't one you know this was like europe basically old europe in a little microcosm in upstate new york um and really decent bread and he will speak so affectionately and longingly and nostalgically about that while he's eating the bologna bread it's very cute <laughs> well who knew we were going to talk about bologna right <laughs> it's the ladies room. and i don't think we need a funny story at the end i think that pretty much covers it i think that was the i guess it was really more sweet than funny it is sweet but knowing eric and the fact that i can visualize it, it it's highly entertaining yeah um, you can visualize the grin while he eats the bologna the bologna eating grin and I don't want to leave without saying like you used some language that was really helpful for me. And I loved that. Um, basically like whether one leads to the other or however it starts, like I like just having more information to look for causality and look for what resonates. Like if it doesn't resonate, then I don't use any of it. Like if I had an Itobi that, that didn't resonate, if I went, I've gone to the doctor and like, that didn't resonate. I wanted to, I've just even lately said like, this isn't really resonating with how I want to do medical, my medical care. Can we talk about this more? And, um, if I pick up a book and it has whatever oil indications or whatever, if it doesn't resonate, don't use it. But I like that just ability to look and add to it the way you talked about it and just looking for like, how do I enhance the conversation I'm having? And what, like, if you could get a breakthrough, around money in your marriage and about back pain at the same time like why not get a twofer right exactly and and the whole don't resonate is kind of going back to what I said at the beginning which is when it comes to biology it's very difficult to come up with the perfect match like you really have to be willing to kind of experiment on yourself and you can do it from inside knowledge whether it comes from western scientific method medicine or eastern ancient knowledge and medicine like kind of taking all the knowledge and the wisdom, but then realizing like, I'm a unique, special little snowflake, but for real, like <laughs> each individual body is really, because it's your, your sum of your experiences and the sum of everything you've ever eaten and the water that all of it, all of it. Like I lived in the great lakes long enough that I'm sure I'm full of heavy metals in a way that other people aren't. Right. So using that wisdom to come up with something that works for your individual, you know, fully prescribed solution for you that's the way you know it's not about one or the other yeah yeah and that may be the way forward as we navigate our our lives and our lives with the people we love is looking for you know what pieces can we all hold together yeah for an integrated solution okay so we're going to end there on the silly story all right see you next time in the ladies room Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to catch us in the ladies room. You can also find Lynn at A Spacious Life on Facebook, Instagram, and in Clubhouse. And find Allie at 5 Billion Entrepreneurs on LinkedIn and Instagram.